0: So I think if there's anything that we uh, all can agree on, especially in this holiday season, it's that none of us likes to wait. We all hate waiting. Uh, and I can speak for myself as someone who's worked most of my adult life in food and in retail, most people hate waiting. I would argue, in fact, that uh, working uh, at the Apple store on Christmas Eve is, uh, should be considered cruel and unusual punishment. And our culture, our technology, the things around us, I think it sometimes exacerbates this issue. It sometimes makes it worse. You know, I think, uh, you know, this is part of the reason why we see, or at least it seems to me every year, that Christmas decorations start to show up in stores a little bit earlier. I think this is the reason why you can now get a pumpkin spice latte in August when it's still 95 degrees outside. Uh, and you, you don't even have to wait, like when I was a kid, you have to wait till Black Friday to turn on the radio and hear Christmas music, but now if you're, you know, really feeling it, you can stream Mariah Carey in July if you're just really needing some Christmas cheer. But more than just, you know, the little frustrations of waiting, or just the regular waiting that comes with the changing of the seasons, some of our deepest pains and longings in this life come as a result of waiting. As one writer reflects on waiting during the Christmas season, she says, I spent last Christmas wondering if this would be the year that God would give my husband and me a baby. He didn't, and I can't help hoping that by this time next year, we'll be a family of three. All the feel-good Christmas movies enhance the hope of a happy reconciliation just in time for Christmas. The lonely are always set in families, and uh, and the long lost make it home. But so often in the real world, Christmas comes and Christmas goes without fulfilling the longings of our hearts. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, waiting can definitely be a good thing. It can stoke our desires, it can make us uh, long for something more and more, and, uh, you know, uh, it can get us excited. You've all heard absence makes the heart grow fonder, or, you know, the longer you wait, the sweeter it tastes. But even when we're ra- waiting for the right things, even if it's a good thing that we just are so excited about, eventually I'm sure we've all experienced that event, you, know, that, that excitement fades, that ultimately that waiting leads to just giving up, to losing interest and moving on to something else, or you know, sometimes even to despair. Uh, Langston Hughes, he's considering this question about, or this idea of waiting, and he asks this question in the poem, "Harlem," he says, "What happens to a dream deferred?" Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? We are all waiting for something. You know, we're waiting to find the one, we're waiting to have kids, maybe we're waiting for kids to move out of the house, waiting for gainful employment, to have finally arrived professionally or in relationships, or maybe waiting for retirement. Or we're just waiting for that hard season of our life to finally come to an end. And in our text this morning, Malachi, as we read earlier, we find a people who have grown sick and tired of waiting. The prophet Malachi, we, uh, we see, is the last book of the Old Testament. And uh, before our text this morning, we see, we see that God has brought these people out of exile but even though God's rescued them, He's brought them back into the land, things aren't what they expected them to be. You know, there's no power uh, or influence yet on the world stage. There's still this kind of backwater country. There's no glory uh, amongst the nations around them. And they're longing for this coming day of the Lord, this day that was promised to them and to their fathers, that the, the Lord would come. But as they're waiting and waiting, this hope begins to grow dimmer and dimmer. And we see the effects of this prolonged waiting throughout the book of Malachi. We're told in earlier chapters that the love of these people had begun to grow cold for God, that their worship was beginning to be lacking, that they were, you know, sacrificing lame animals. They were simply, in many ways, just going through the motions of their religion. And as they're looking, as they're waiting, as they're anticipating this coming day of the Lord, they begin to ask the question in many ways, what's the point? What's the point of, of continuing, of continuing to wait Malachi paints a picture for us of a church without much glory, a church losing motivation to remain faithful, wondering when the Messiah would come and finally make all things right. And our passage this morning, Malachi 3, is framed by this question at the end of chapter 2 where the people are asking, where is the God of justice? This question, where is God, where is the God of justice, it it implies uh, one of two things from the standpoint of the people. Either God has changed his character, either God is no longer a God of justice, a God who's going to bring about right ends, or simply God is out of the picture, that God perhaps isn't even real at all. Where is this God of justice? Either God is not willing to come and help the people, or God is simply not able. And it is in the midst of this questioning, in the midst of this waiting, that God gives this prophecy in Malachi 3. God tells the people behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And so we see first in this prophecy, we're introduced to this character who God calls my messenger. God tells the people that before this great and awesome day of judgment, he will send a messenger. And this this phrase, my messenger, is is uh, in one way, it's a play on words because Malachi's own name means my messenger. And so Malachi is saying, Malachi is coming. But unlike Malachi and the other prophets, you know, unlike this prophet who would come and go for this next generation, this messenger, my messenger, uh, is the final messenger that God is promising. And Malachi here is reflecting even the earlier prophets like Isaiah, this idea that before the Messiah would come, there will be this forerunner, this final messenger who will prepare his way, who will announce that he has come. And we're told more about him in the next chapter in, in Malachi 4 that He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to bring about this this time of spiritual renewal, this time of of great repentance among God's people. And then after this messenger comes, this this forebearer of of the the next person that we're introduced to, we see that God says, and then the Lord whom you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So Malachi introduces this character, the, uh, he calls him the Lord and the messenger, and he gives us this uh, this twofold description of what he's going to be like. On the one hand, he's the Lord who's coming to his temple, so he is, uh, you know, he's this one who's going to take his rightful place as the Lord amongst his people, but he's also the messenger of the covenant. He's the one who is going to be faithful and bring about all the promises of the covenant. And in short, he is the Messiah. This is the one that they're waiting for. This is that final one who will come and make all things new. And we see that this person, it's not just this general hope, but it's this specific person that these people ultimately have been waiting for. And God, you know, points this out by saying, it's the Lord whom you are seeking. It's the messenger in whom you are desiring. And in this description, not only is he de- describing what this Messiah will be like, he's also implicitly answering the concerns that the people are having. You know, the people are asking, where is this God of justice? Where is this one who will come and bring about justice? And God tells them, he's coming, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about you. He describes him as, the, uh, as this one who will sit on his throne, who will sit in justice, who will rule over his people rightly, who will have all authority and uh, have all judgment. But he's also this covenant messenger. He's the one who keeps covenant faithfulness. He comes as this mediator, this messenger of the covenant between God and man. And so we see in in summary that this one who is coming is both just to bring about judgment, to bring about a right end, but he's also faithful. He's faithful. He's going to keep the promises that God has been giving to his people. And it seems, you know, this this should be, and and it definitely is in one sense, good news for the people. God is saying, yes, I haven't forgotten you. The Messiah is coming. He's going to sit in his house. He's going to bring about fruition to all these promises that I've made to you and to your fathers. And while, yes, it should be good news for the people, God asks them this ominous question in verse 2. He says, who can endure? Who can stand? You know, when the Messiah comes, who can endure his coming? And the, you know, the implied answer here is, when he says, who can stand, the, the answer is nobody. Nobody can stand when this one comes. And in, in one way, God is asking the people, do you really know what you're asking for? When you're asking me to come and when you're wondering why I've delayed, do you really know what you're asking for and what you're getting yourselves into? Because the people thought uh, that the day of the Lord would be good for them, that it would be this great, uh, this great day that they had, would have achieved. But, and the, you know, the irony is they're asking this question, where is God, where is the God of justice? The irony is that the people thought that God's delay was because of some deficiency, some unfaithfulness on God's part. And yet we see, as God asks this question, the reason that God is delaying his day of judgment is not because there's something faulty in him, not something lacking in him, but because of something that we see in the people. God is essentially saying the delay of my judgment is because I need to get you ready first. You aren't ready yet. It is because God is a God of justice, because He is a God of judgment that He is delaying His coming. You know, if He comes to the people as they are right now, in their sin, in their uh, waywardness, it will only mean condemnation and judgment for His people. And then He goes on to describe, He's already said, you know, who is coming, this Messiah, but then He goes on to describe what this Messiah will do when He comes. He describes him as a refiner, as this one who will come and purify metals, as this laundryman, this one who's going to wash clothes, make them white. You know, this image of fire, right? The, this idea of this furnace burning out all the impurities of metal, making it 100% pure gold. And then this, this idea of soap, which really, soap doesn't even get to the heart of, of what this word means. It's more like a uh, lye or bleach, this agent that will, you know, that, that's very harsh, that will clear out all the impurities. In a fabric. And this picture of fire, this picture of bleaching clothes, it's, you know, uh, we see it's not just this superficial cleansing, but God is saying there's going to be this deep transformative cleansing that needs to happen before I come into your midst. In order for the day of of God's judgment to be a blessing for his people, we see, he must purify them first. He must cleanse them from their sins. And there's even a wordplay here in uh, verse 2, this word soap, Uh, sounds very similar to the word covenant. And so God is essentially saying, I'm going to bring about a covenant washing among my people. And this idea of of covenant washing or covenant purification, it's one of the promises that the people have been told to expect. This promise of the new covenant that God will come, he will purify his people, he will cleanse them. We see elsewhere in the prophets that he he will come to give them a new heart and a new spirit he will put within them. And we see elsewhere that he, he's going to come to forgive them of their iniquities and remember their former sins no more. And then we see God moves on. He focuses specifically on the Levites. He says, I'm going to purify the Levites. I'm going to make them like gold and silver. And the reason for this and you know, why he's focusing on the Levites is because it's the Levites uh, who are the ones who offer the sacrifices on behalf of God's people. They're, they're the ones we see earlier in the book of Malachi who have been lacking in their job, who have become deficient, who have grown negligent in their duty of making right sacrifices before God. And as God purifies the priests, as He purifies the offering, uh, we see it expands. He's going to begin then to purify Jerusalem. He's going to purify all of Judah through this act of cleansing. And then, as the result, as He finally, you know, God promises this ultimate cleansing. He's going to clean the people. He's going to purify them like metals. Then we see in verse 5, or, or sorry, in, in verse 4, then the result of this, that there's going to be this time of proper worship, that the, they're going to be restored in their relationship to God, and that God will finally be able to dwell among his people. And then just like the, uh, this, this prophecy is framed with this question of where is the God of judgment, then God, uh, in verse 5, he concludes by saying, then and only then, then after I've taken care of your sin, after I've cleansed you, then I will come, and only then will I judge. So, if if your Bibles are open, you'll, you know, if you turn, you don't have to, but if you turn forward a page, you'll see that this is the very end of the Old Testament. This is the last word from God to his people. And, you know, historically, this is the last thing that we have recorded from God for about 400 years. God leaves, or he gives Israel this promise that, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm going to send my Messiah, and then there's 400 years of silence. And, the, you know, what the people are expecting is this foreigner. We're looking for this one who God said will we'll come, will prepare the way of the Lord. And then the very next thing, after 400 years of silence, the very next word that we hear from God, we see in Luke 1, is this word from an angel to Zechariah, who is a Levitical priest, no less, as we, like we saw in our text. And the angel comes to, uh, to Zechariah in the temple, and he gives him this prophecy that his wife who is beyond child-bearing, uh, or is unable to bear a child, rather, um, that she will have a son, and that this son will grow up to be, as you all know, John the Baptist. And then, in, 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 uh, as the angel is describing the role, as he's describing what John the Baptist is going to do, he pulls uh, John's job description directly from the prophet Malachi. He says that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this day that God had promised 400 years earlier through the the word of this angel had finally come, that this forerunner was going to be born. He was going to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And then Zechariah, after he's made... Uh, made mute for a while, and then finally John's born. Uh, has, you know, he's had some time to reflect on this, this word from the angel, and he gives this, this beautiful prophetic song that we sang earlier today. And uh, part of the song, you know, as he's reflecting on what this means and what the significance is, he says, as he's speaking this word to, to John, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of of their sins. And so, so note what Zechariah has picked up on that uh, this one who is coming, this uh, son who has been born to him, he is going to announce salvation for God's people, in particular, in, in particular through the forgiveness of their sins. That the forgiveness of their sins is the means by which God will come and save them. And then later on in the Gospels, as we see uh, John's ministry unfold, we see that you know, John's job is. Uh, you know, he's not preparing a way, literally, he's not clearing out uh, mountains and making a path, but he's preparing a people for God to come. He's preparing a people, he's calling them to repent from their sins. He's telling them that there's this, you know, in, in very fiery imagery, like we read in Malachi, that there's this day of judgment coming and to get ready for the Messiah. You know, and then thinking if, if John's the forerunner, obviously, you know, the one he's pointing to, we know is Christ. And if Christ is that purifier, that one who's coming like a refining fire, How does he bring about this cleansing? Well, we uh, we saw earlier in Malachi that Christ is not simply the refiner, but it actually talks about him as the fire as well. He's not just the one who washes the clothes, but it talks about him being that washing soap. Or in the the Levitical language, he's not going to be just the priest who offers up a sacrifice for, for sin, but he is going to be himself the perfect sacrifice. Who takes away sin by his own blood. And even, you know, John makes this explicit as he sees Christ come onto the scene, as he is pointing to Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Christ comes, as Malachi and as the other prophets promised, when Christ comes, he comes as the one who purifies us, who prepares us for his coming. And he does this in particular by being judged for us, by bearing the penalty of. For our sins by bearing that justice, that judgment that we cannot endure. And Paul, you know, summarizes this purifying work that Christ came to do. He says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And not only do we uh, trust that Christ came once. Not only do we, see, do we see Christ as the fulfillment of this word of prophecy to Malachi, but we know, and, and Malachi tells us, that Christ is coming again. And you know, not only do we know it, we confess it every week, that Christ uh, will come to judge the living and the dead. It's, we, we know this. We believe it. And Malachi's prophecy shows, in a sense, that uh, Christ it came in his first coming so that his second coming will be a blessing for us and not a curse. Christ, in his first coming, took on our very flesh and blood. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. He suffered in our place, and he won our salvation. And in this way, as Malachi foretells, the first advent of Christ makes the second advent something that we long for, something that we are waiting for, rather than something that we dread. And this, you know, it is amazing news. This is the the good news of the gospel that we celebrate week in and week out, and in particular, in this Advent season, we celebrate that Christ came in the flesh. We celebrate that God has been faithful to his covenants, that he has, you know, not come in wrath, but he's come in mercy. We celebrate that he's given us his son as, you know, that, that true gift of Christmas, that, that gift of a baby in a manger who took on our flesh, who came to die for our sins, to restore us to God, to give us new life. And we do, as a church, we rejoice in this news. And yet we too, like those in Malachi's day, we've heard this good news of salvation, and yet we find ourselves, especially in this season of Advent, we find ourselves uh, waiting. We rejoice in Christ's first coming, and yet we're waiting, we're looking forward to this second coming. And as, uh, as Christ's second coming stands before us, you know, and as the things in this world still remain in many ways unfulfilled, these things that we feel like are lacking or haven't been done yet, we can be tempted, a question, just like in Malachi's day, we can be tempted and say things like, you know, what is God waiting for? Why hasn't he made all things right? Where is the God of justice? If you've ever found yourself, you know, waiting for someone, you know, maybe you're, uh, you know, picking someone up or you're waiting to meet someone at a coffee shop and, you know, five minutes go by, ten minutes go by, fifteen minutes go by, no word from them, you know, our first inclination is to think, you know, I can't believe them, how, how inconsiderate. You know, and then they come if they say something like, oh, sorry, I, I, you know, I ran into an old friend and we started talking, you know, it's going to make you even more upset. But if they say something like, I'm sorry, I got a flat tire and I, you know, had to pull over on the side of the road, then, you know, we just kind of feel like a jerk and realize that we were just impatient. But I think, you know, similarly, as we're waiting for God, as we're, as we're waiting for things to be fulfilled, we can often, you know, our default position can be to think, what's taking so long? You know, where is God? Is He, is he really there? Does He really care Why aren't things the way that they should be quite yet? We can think that God's delay in coming is just a sign of his lack of concern for us. That God is, you know, simply uh, taking his sweet time, that he's, you know, sitting back twiddling his thumbs, and that he's distant from us, that he doesn't care. And yet, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that God's delay is not evidence of his indifference to us, but rather it is the proof of his great love for us. In Second Peter, Peter says this to a group of Christians who is you know waiting for that day. They're in suffering and they're wondering when God is going to return. And, and Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some of you count slowness, but He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we see in Scripture that it is for our sake. It is just like in Malachi's day. It is our, for our sake that the uh, that Christ delays that God does not come in judgment yet. It is for the sake of the elect that Christ delays his second coming. We see that Christ delays so that he might gather in all those who are his, all those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, all of those for whom Christ died for. the, uh, The scripture tells us that Christ will not return. He promises not to return until the full number of all those whom he has redeemed have been saved and brought in. You know, it's, in in light of this, it's not wrong for us to pray that you know Christ would come quickly, and in, in fact, Scripture encourages that we pray for Christ's soon return. And yet, you know, imagine if God answered that prayer of the saints twenty years ago, fifty years ago, a hundred years ago. We can truly say that Christ delays for your sake and for my sake, and for the sake of those who have not yet come to know Him. Christ is not delaying, but He is truly in our waiting. Christ is accomplishing His. Purposes of redemption. And in part, the, uh, the incarnation, Christ's coming in, in Advent, testifies to us of that truth, that Christ came, that he took on flesh, that proves that he will finish what he started. You know, if Christ came, he became human, he took on flesh, he became like us, he took our sin, even uniting himself to us. If he won our salvation, he will surely come to accomplish that salvation. And this is why Paul, as we read this morning in Philippians 1, this is why Paul can say that I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. So even now, you know, God just like in Malachi's day, God continues to show patience and to care for impatient, wayward people. God continues to strengthen his people to encourage us, to prepare us for that that great day of Christ's second coming. And in, in 1 Peter, as you know, P, uh, 1 Peter 1, is P, he's giving us this vision of you know, this future inheritance, this joy that we have that we're waiting for uh, in heaven. Paul, uh, Peter says this, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you, do not, or though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So we can say that, you know, the Christian life is a life of waiting. It's this awkward period, you know, in some ways between Christ's First coming and his second coming. And yet, this Advent season reminds us that our waiting is not in vain, that Christ will truly finish what he started. The author of Hebrews, as he, you know, he goes through this, uh, you know, this long catalog of, of why Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, why it was perfect. And after going through and detailing all of that, he says this, he says that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so this morning, may we be encouraged to eagerly await for our Savior, a Savior who has dealt with our sins, who cares for us even now, and a Savior who promises again and again that he will come again. Let us pray.